I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. So welcome back to Pushback Talks. Leilani, you're an advocate. You were the UN Special Rapporteur of Housing as a Human Rights. Now you're not anymore, but you're still in it in some ways. Once an advocate, always an advocate, perhaps. Uh, yeah, trying to change people's yeah. minds. And today we're going to talk about changing people's minds. And of course, that's also my work. I want to try to change the conversation. This time we're going to invite a very interesting man, a bestseller writer, uh, Anand Shiradas, the author of the international bestseller Winners Take All. He's an on-air political analyst for a major American television network. Today we're talking about his recently released book, The Persuaders. The Persuaders is a stunning insider account of activists, politicians, educators, and everyday citizens who are on the ground working to change minds, bridge divisions, and fight for democracy. This is something that really is up our alley, Leilani, isn't it? Absolutely. Welcome to Pushback Talks, Anand. Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's really cool to have you here. First of all, why a book about persuaders? You know, as I looked out at my country, the United States, in recent years, it seemed to me that we were living through a crisis of democracy, which I think is now a, a pretty obvious observation to most people. This week in the midterm elections, the cause of democracy had a slightly better day than expected, but we shouldn't be in a situation to begin with where the very idea of liberal democracy is so close to the edge of imperilment. And as I looked out at, at the American political scene, it seemed to me one of the, the things contributing to that is a, is a loss of faith in the idea of persuasion. One of the things that a very polarized, fractious time has brought is a kind of uh, widespread view that it is impossible to change people's minds, that people will never change their minds or ways. They, they will think X because they are X. They belong to this group, so they will always belong to that group and believe what that group is saying. Uh, they don't like the vaccine, so they will never like the vaccine. They like Trump once, so they'll always stick with him. The problem with this fatalism is one, it's empirically false. People change their minds all the time. Otherwise, what's the whole point? Uh, you know, think about what it was like to be gay 30 years ago in any place in the world and, and what it's like to be gay now in many places in the world. Uh, saying people's minds don't change is a real insult to the incredible work that organizers do every day to absolutely change people's minds. Um, and secondly, it's just self-defeating. What I realized is a lot of the people who are actually saying people's minds don't change, don't bother, they, they were seemingly talking about other people, but they were actually narrating their own impotence. It was actually themselves they were talking about. They don't know how to change minds. Actually, many of us don't know how to change minds today, but there are people who do. And I set out to write the persuaders to tell the stories of people who do so that the rest of us could learn from them. So it's, it's also a book about love and, and change and, and conversation. But Leilani, you're also persuaded. I mean, this book could be about you. I guess it could. Um, I have to um, give you a huge thanks, Anand, uh, for writing the book. On a really personal level, I'll just put this out there. It was deeply validating and not validating because I'm some amazing persuader, um, but validating because 
Well, I think for the bulk of my life as an advocate, I've, I've had a hard time believing that what I do is a job. And I mean, for years and years, my parents were like, what do you do? Like, what is it that you actually do? And it was only when I became the UN rapporteur that they were like, oh, you're trying to change the world for a living. <laughs> and so your book just um, it, is this made me feel like I'm actually part of something that exists and that's important. And um, so I just wanted to convey that to you as a persuader. Um, on a professional level, I learned a whole hell of a lot, I have to say. I learned a lot about the, some of the mistakes that I've made, obviously, and I will probably continue to make, um, but also the strengths of, of the work that I've been setting out to do um, to make the planet a better place to live for a lot of people. And what I loved about the book was that you you turned what I think I do by intuition um, and made me feel like, wait a second, there's like reason for what I do and when I do it and why I do it. It's not all intuition. There is a bit of a science, if I might say, to what we persuaders do. So anyway, that's my initial reaction to the book. Well, thank you so much. And I think uh, it's, you know, I'm here in Sweden. We just had an election where... The right wing won with like 40,000 votes shifted. So we have a total new government and it's very aggressive. And And a lot of, of people, my friends, they turn extremely uh, depressive right now. It's hopeless. It's darkness. I mean, my friends in Brazil has for a long time been living in this same kind of mood. It's like dark, hopeless. And now it's, everything is lighter because uh, Lula got some percentage more votes. We're going between this despair and hope a lot. And for me, I think it's this election politics in some ways, they are really important, of course, but it's also, it becomes like a sport game. I think what you are talking about is more, how do we change the conversation? Because if we manage to change the conversation, we can also change the world and, and move things. You know, I, th I think, look, the, it, there's a lot of reason to despair right now. Democracy is in crisis around the world in the countries you mentioned and elsewhere. But I think if you look at what happened in Italy recently if, with Maloney, if you look at um, the Brazilian result, it was a great result, but it was a great result by a, a hair and it, it could very easily have gone the other way. We, you know, we, we are seeing around the world, including here in the United States, a contest between democracy and fascism. And even on the good days, democracy is winning by a very razor thin margin. And that is not acceptable, right? Like fascism should not be in a dead heat with democracy. And right now it is. And I think part of the intervention of the book is to say, we have to stop telling ourselves these people are doing power grabs and all of that, that which they are in many cases. But in a real contest, for hearts and minds. We're also just not beating them. That's the bottom line. They are additionally doing rigging and running people who are trying to sabotage elections and threatening violence. All of that is real, but do not rest on the laurels of if they weren't doing the bad stuff, we would be killing it. We are not killing it. I think that's the starting point of the book, that the pro-democracy, pro-freedom movement around the world is absolutely not killing it is absolutely not winning in the way it should be. Some of these movements we're seeing, they should not get above 20% in the polls. They should not win primaries, right? So I wanted to write a book for the pro-democracy movement, the pro-freedom movement, 
that I am part of to say as a, with a kind of loving intervention, we are not winning, but we can win. And let's look at the work of a handful of, of persuaders who I profile in this book, who I think show us a different playbook for winning. Hmm. Hmm. One of the things you just said, Anand, was this idea of loving intervention. And it was such a strange thing I noticed the way love plays itself out in the book and for the different activist advocates. Um, it seemed like it was, a, to me, it's a theme in the book. Like Loretta Ross says, you have to be in a loving, healing space to call anybody in. You can expose people to different information and help them learn if you do so with love. And there's a reiteration of that idea, the idea of, we're not going to, in quotes, win by beating people over the heads with statistics and anger and that kind of uh, attempt. What we need to do is we need to figure out a way to hold our own with, uh, with values, but broaden the tent and call people in rather than call them out. But love seems to be so much part of that. I don't know if that was purposeful on your part or... Um, if that's just sort of what you saw emerge. Um, but I'm interested in that idea of love as part of changing hearts and minds. Yeah, I think in many ways, this is a book about a politics of love. And I'm glad you picked up on that. Uh, you know, I think a politics of love should not be misunderstood as a politics of softness or gentleness. Um, a politics of love is a muscular thing. You know, the writer and radio host Krista Tippett has a great line in her book, Becoming Wise, that love, you know, used to be understood as a kind of civic and public virtue that has since been domesticated into private family life as a thing that only occurs, you know, between family and, and close friends. But that was not what Martin Luther King was talking about when he talked about love. That was not what, you know, Jesus Christ was talking about when he talked about love. That was not what most of the world religions were talking about when they spoke of love. There's a kind of civic meaning that has been kind of stripped away. And it's just like, something mommies and daddies have for their for their children. Um, and so in some ways, this book is articulating a kind of civic political love, uh, politics of love. And that means, by the way, it doesn't mean just I will, you know, uh, accommodate my neighbor regardless of what they believe. It, it means standing up for a fair economy that works for all. It's not it's not loving to have gentle relations with your neighbors, but have people starving to death uh, because they can't find a high enough paying job. So politics of love is muscular. It's it's about a kind of society with healthcare for all, with opportunity for all, with housing for all, as you work on. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's a, there's a substantive notion of a politics of love that helps people's lives be better. However, I think there's also a kind of more procedural component to a politics of love that is about how do you bring people into the visions you have for that better world, for a politics of love. And sometimes I think the irony that you're getting at, I think sometimes those of us on the political left are pursuing a substantive politics of love, but our political tactics are not really a politics of love. We are quite unloving in our pursuit of a loving society, right? Um, 
we 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 build movements that kind of drive people away in service of the idea of a society that works for all. You know, I think this contradiction, many people have observed this, you know, Bernie Sanders is someone who, you know, and I, I had this conversation openly with Bernie about Bernie, like Bernie Sanders is someone who has a vision of a politics of love, but of all the people I've ever interviewed is least, is sort of least warm and like, re, like really does not care about people in front of him, you know, uh, in a way that is obvious to anybody who's in front of him who doesn't know him forever. Um, and that's fine. But it's there's a mismatch. And a lot of voters, I think, picked up on that. Like you say you want this politics of love, but like is your movement loving and warm to everyone, including people who don't entirely get it? And and it had trouble there. And I write about in the book people in his in his uh, movement re reacting after the fact to why did we fall short? Where wh What was the next 10 percent of votes we didn't get and could have gotten? What was the next 10 percent after that? And some of that had to do with. We were a campaign of righteous anger, and that was good. That's important. There's reasons for anger. And if we are a movement that is simply the sum of all of our anger, we're going to lose. And it's a hard problem. How do you channel that anger in service of building a politics of love, but not come across as only angry? only having that story to tell. It's a hard problem. I don't, I, I, I don't say it, it's trivial. I don't say it's easy. I think if there were ways that a Bernie movement or other movements could have solved that problem in ways that would have defanged the movement, you know, you need to keep the righteous anger that is the jet fuel of that movement and at the same time project something different. And so, you know, I think when I look at the American political scene, I see I, essentially to oversimplify a little bit, you have some moderates who are very good at being like sunny and patriotic and happy and smiley, but they don't stand for anything. So they may have a tactical politics of love, but they're not fighting for a, actually loving systems and structures. And then you have other people who are often fighting for those things, but struggle to build warmth into their movements and approaches. And in a way, what I'm arguing for is a, is a really deep concept of a politics of love that is both, both in the substantive world we want to live in, but in the kind of movements we want to build that are irresistible to people, as the writer Tony Cade Bambara said, uh, that, that pull people in, that have an open heart and open space for people who don't fully get it, haven't read all the books, but are curious about coming inside. Yeah, I think that's really, it's, it's really crucial. And that's, very much how we try to move also both me and Leilani uh, try to not go for the hate message and to the very strong, obvious, political, hard-hitting arguments because they're a bit boring and we've heard them so many times before. And I think the left has an issue with, with history in some ways. It's kind of there is a very old language that keeps being repeated over and over again. And then the American left has a very different issue from the maybe the European because the American left never wins in some way. Yeah, and I, and I remember, you know, I remember with Bernie, there was these, I would see these moments where people online would say, you know, I don't like Bernie's socialism. This is terrible. But he does seem like a guy who would, would, would kind of fight for working class families like mine. So I like yeah. that about him. Yeah. And then you'd see people inside the movement, regular people inside the movement, criticize that person for say, oh, this is what happens when you don't know any theory. Or like, exactly. this is what happens. And it's like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? That guy is coming to into your movement saying, I don't like the official label of this movement, but something in it is making me knock on your door anyway. I'm feeling like this guy cares about me. Yeah. I'm feeling an intuit. 
and you're telling that person they don't know enough, right? And and I think it's laughable, but I think a lot of our movements do this. A lot of the movements that actually are fighting for a more open, inclusive world for all are in their tactics not particularly inclusive. And I think we need to change that. Mm -hmm. How was your own journey to get into this conclusion? Have you also been more hard-hitting before in your... I know you're... You're a famous American commentator. I mean, you, you do commentaries in in one of the major TV channels. I mean, so you're you're out there all the time arguing. Have you, in some way, also changed in this process of the writing the book? I think so. Maybe in certain ways, I certainly learned from the people I'm writing about. You know, and again, I don't want to be misunderstood. This book is not about not getting angry or or, or about being gentle or whatever. You know, this book is about I think being strategic about the deployment of different types of energy, right? And so whether it's on the housing fight or other fights, is there a place for anger? Absolutely. Is there a place for calling out? Absolutely. Is there a place for also calling people in? Yes. Is there a place for working hearts and minds? Yes. Is there a place for laying on the ground and doing protests outside a global bank? Yes. Right. I am a big believer in an all of the above approach and a big believer in a coalitional approach and a big believer in the need for mutual respect for different people in this movement to pursue different tactics and for people to have a little bit of faith in other people's tactics. So as a persuader myself, someone on television, someone who writes, why, why do you write? Why do you why do you go on television? We're not trying to persuade. Um, it's not for me about never having a strident point of view. It's just about being strategic. So I, one of the things I learned from many of these subjects is, am I framing things in a way that is going to pull people in if that's my purpose? Sometimes that's not my purpose. The other day I was in Texas. I was asked to give a speech at a, the Texas Book Festival. And I found out, I had had my speech written out and I found out an hour before I was going to go on stage through an announcement that the wife of the governor of Texas, the first lady of Texas, Cecilia Abbott, the wife of Greg Abbott, the governor, was in the audience. This is a woman who's a militant anti-abortion choice activist, along with her husband. She headlined a rally uh, her, herself. Um, this is a state, of course, where the right, the women's right over their body has been taken away uh, in something that, you know, we often associate with different centuries than, than, than this one. And so without telling anybody, I went up on stage and I wrote, hand wrote into my speech, an invitation to, I said, it's an honor to have you here, Cecilia. And uh, would you please pass on the message to your husband to leave other women's bodies alone? And I then invited the room to stand up. If they also wanted the governor of Texas that night when she went back home to hear the message, leave other women's bodies alone. Well, saw that and said, wow, great persuader you are. You really know how to persuade people. Well, you know what? My goal there was not to persuade Cecilia Abbott. No. My goal was to make it uncomfortable to move through the world mm. if what you are doing is taking away women's right to be free. That also is part of persuasion. That also is part of fighting for the world we want. So. But if you gave me a Zoom with Cecilia Abbott and there wasn't a crowd there, I have a whole bunch of other approaches I would pursue. I could talk to her for hours. I could tell her it's actually not the Christian thing 
to turn women into this. And I can tell her why. I think to be a good persuader, you have to have a lot of tools in your toolkit and you have to be willing to do everything on the spectrum from laying down in traffic to to moving people based on an understanding of who they are, what they care about, what their values are and hooking the world you want into a realistic and empathetic understanding of who they are and what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that comes across so clearly in the book. And there was a way uh that the book is exhausting because, I mean, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's right. I do this. I do that. I toggle between worlds. Sometimes I'm a friend. Sometimes I'm hard, you know, et cetera. And, and it's so well captured. The energy required to change minds and the the huge number of tools you need to to make change. I'm reminded, and uh, Frederick will recall this, when we were filming Push, um, we wanted to speak with a conservative politician in the United That's Kingdom. Funny. So we yeah. found a guy who has a big reputation, very conservative, very right wing, um, a very divisive character. And we went to his home and I was going to interview him and Frederick was going to film with his crew. And we got in, there was, and, and I'll just be honest, there was a vibe in the house. It didn't work well for me. I, I can't explain that. Um, there were lurid yellow walls. Maybe it was that. Um, I don't know. Um, or the harp. There was a, a harp, a kind of lonely <laughs> harp in a hallway. Who knows? Sat down with him and he had put me in a box, even though he'd been told that I was kind of an unusual advocate. I, I'm, I'm not like a, a typical lefty. I think a colleague of his told him that. I think when he saw me, he saw a younger woman than I actually am. Um, he saw me as a typical lefty. He put me in that box. We started to have a conversation, and he was being pretty argumentative and pretty strident in his uh, right-wing, what I would consider to be right-wing views. And I didn't really take him on. I, I was listening. I made a few points here and there, but I wasn't particularly combative. I wasn't particularly engaging. I just kind of let him do his thing. And afterward, Frederick and the editor uh, of the film, Eric, were looking at the footage and they were like, why did you like you? We were really surprised. You didn't take the guy on. You didn't push him. You didn't do anything. And first time I've thought about that incident since it happened was when I was reading your book. And it made me realize I was making a strategic choice. It wasn't that I was a doormat being rolled over by this guy. I knew that there was no potential for persuasion in that moment. And I wasn't interested in having, a, there was there was no shaming possibility. This was a private conversation. It wasn't like you and the governor's wife, the first lady, you know, there was no, there was nothing to be gained. Maybe for the filmmakers there was, but for me as an advocate, nothing to be gained. And so those decisions you're making, I mean, we get them wrong as persuaders. We all get them wrong. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I could have done something there. But your book was so is so helpful in that, like that you're going to need to be doing a whole lot of things at a whole lot of different levels. Yeah. I just wanted to expose the way in which the book interacts with someone who is a persuader because like I'm reading it for content, like, oh, I, I'd like to know how AOC rolls or, you know, I want to know how these door knockers are doing these 30 minute intensive conversations. But at the same time, as a persuader, I'm looking for, OK, what am I learning from this book? How can I be better? I want to be the best 
persuader out there, right? I mean, that's my game. Like, I want to change minds. I'm going to bring down private equity. So That's a challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a small challenge. Anyway, just a comment. Yeah. Reflections on the effectiveness of your book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And on uh, Twitter, social media has been used to divide us even more. And I would say uh, for a long time, I've told people to stop resending Donald Trump's stupid things or I mean all the provocations out there or like, like a lot of people love to send out when the other side is making stupid things and and it's like a very easy bait but in your book you talk about this Russian trolls who are both on the left side and on the right side stirring up the debate can you tell us about that what is their strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think I think everyone listening to this has heard about the Russian meddling in in Western democracies in the last several years, and 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 there's been all you know various forms of it, and certain perceptions have grown up around what the Russians were trying to do. They were encouraging Brexit. They were encouraging Donald Trump. They were encouraging kind of chaos. They were encouraging extremism. They were encouraging anger and division. All of that. There's elements of truth in all of it, but. As I I began to, I'm a, I'm a reader, you know, in addition to being a writer, and I, I I try to read things closely to understand the deeper thing going on sometimes. And I realized I hadn't read these Russian social media posts myself. I had read people's description of them or anal- government analysis of them, but I hadn't just like read them like a book. So I downloaded thousands of tweets by two of the main Russian trolls, two of the most successful ones, right? They threw out a lot of different tweets by a lot of different accounts, and some of them really caught on as big accounts that people thought were real people and were were retweeting and following. So there was one on the left, influential one on the left, Crystal Johnson, and one on the right, Jenna Abrams. And I followed both of them, and I downloaded all the, their tweets from 20, you know, 14, 15, 16, and just started reading them. Like it was Shakespeare, like reading it like a text. Are they real people? Um, Crystal Johnson appears to have been a real person, a real estate broker in Georgia, whose identity was cloned and then a troll account was created. And then they just used that cloned troll account and her photo, uh, at least at first, to start tweeting. You know, so it had nothing to do with her. She she had no culpability in it. The other account, I I didn't I never saw any connection to a real person. The, the thing I found with Crystal was actually unusual. When I I mean I you know the the idea that they actually stole a real person's identity was kind of unusual. I think uh, I started reading these tweets, and as I read them, it occurred to me that, that there's more than anger and division going on here. There's more than just chaos. There's more than getting Trump elected or getting Brexit done or whatever. There is a stoking of contempt and dismissal among us, right? So, you know, I think when Leilani, Leilani says, I'm a persuader, you only say that because you have a certain belief that people can move if you say the right thing or marshal the right arguments or marshal. And at the end of the day, what the Russians wanted us to believe, as I read these tweets, was that people cannot move. That rich people are always going to do what they're going to do. White people are always going to do what they're going to do. Black people are always going to do what they're going to do. Immigrants are always, and there's no point in further discussion. And it's interesting. If you talk to marriage counselors, they will tell you that, that anger is not a big problem. 
in a marriage, right? Uh, fights are not, in fact, it's more of a problem to not fight in a marriage than it is a problem to fight. What is a problem in a marriage is contempt. You got contempt and you have dismissal, your marriage is done, right? And so what the Russians were doing was trying to kind of foment a great American divorce um, by stoking this sense of contempt. Because if we basically believe that other people are to be resisted rather than won over, people who disagree with us are to be resisted rather than won over, we've given up on the idea of politics, right? We've turned politics into antibiotics. Other people are, are, are bacteria who you need to protect your body from. Um, and what we don't realize we're doing, even though we're doing it, is to basically invite tyranny and violence back to the forefront of how we order our lives. For most of human history, the way people got the world they want was through force and conquest and tyranny. And in the last few hundred years, we tried something different. And when we turn our back on the idea of changing minds, we, we, we actually are turning are back on persuasion on, on democracy. Uh, and so the book then jumps from that Russian operation to a bunch of people who I think show how we can resist the write-off, refuse to write people off, and in fact, uh, seek to win over those who, who may disagree with us now, but, but could agree with us someday. Hmm. I wanted to ask if your opinion is that the very thing that makes people vulnerable to those messages, those divisive messages, the very thing that makes people vulnerable to, for example, a cult, as you talk about in the book, is the same quality that makes us available to change. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very important question because it's a weird place to find hope, but I think it is actually like the far right, and a lot of these uh, these conspiracy movements and other things right now, they actually believe that people can change. That's why they do what they do. And the problem is that the good guys, so to speak, have turned more fatalistic about people changing. And that is a very dangerous state of affairs. Um, and I think you need to start with a what, what a lot of the far-right movements and some of these cult-like movements do is they basically have an astute understanding of human psychology and human emotions and people as they are. And they build their politics on top of an understanding of who people actually are. And I think a problem on the political left is sometimes an aspirational view of people, of voters, that is that is kind of based on reading Plato's Republic rather than knowing how actual people are, right? It, it is based on some kind of fantasy of a reasoning citizenry that that you know sits around and and consults uh you know textbooks before figuring out its stance on immigration policy when in fact you know there's an animalistic element to politics we are afraid we are anxious we are feeling generous we are feeling scarce we are feeling hopeful and and the things you know it's not it's not cogitation that causes these feelings. It's just like living in the world and what the atmospheric conditions are. And then a politician puts a question in front of you. Would you like Sweden's borders to be more open or less open? And I think in some deep way, the dominant view on the left is someone is like listening to arguments and like and processing what the ideal immigration policy for Sweden is. And I think what the right understands is like, 
it's a scared person sitting around the table who is answering that question and who is trying to put a little bit of balm on their fear in how they answer the question, who's trying to make themselves feel better in the way they answer the question. And once you have that view, a kind of human-centered, user-centered idea of politics, once you get over this kind of Plato's Republic fantasy of a reasoning citizenry, um, I think it frees you to make the kinds of political appeals that would actually move people and to stop speaking in this bizarre language of policy that often you know, afflicts the political left, at least in the United States, and to start speaking to people at the level of their humanity. Uh, because you know, people can also be summoned to feel hope. People can also be summoned to feel patriotic about a country that is generous and welcoming. But you have to speak to people at that level. And all too often, I feel like I'm sitting in the United States with these arguments whizzing by, and the right is talking to people based on knowing what people are like. And the left is projecting its voice high into the sky, offering 82-point plans and, and, and kind of grand policy prescriptions and like bold, empty phrases. And it's like, have you ever met a person? Like, are, have you been behind your desk too long? You know, we, we, we are not going to outcompete fascism with spreadsheets and with technocrats with low emotional intelligence. We're going to need a real movement of emotional intelligence on the pro-democracy side if our societies are to have a chance. I totally agree. Just coming out of this, the Swedish elections, and I mean, also following the Brazilians and other elections and the Italian, you're also up against this strategic communication industry the behavioral change industry that are planting talking points. And suddenly in, in our election series, suddenly everybody on the right had the same talking points from the people you could listen to on the train to the people writing editorials to the politicians. It was like a few very sharp points full of uh, fake facts or not totally true facts, very dishonest in many ways. And it it is quite often hard to to move the focus away from their talking points. I didn't engage in any of this on, on Twitter and so on because it felt like it's pointless, you know, because they, it's like, it, that was my frustration. I don't know how we, how do you handle when you're up against those kind of talking points that are so well planted into the conversation? I guess you had the same now in the US elections. It's kind of, I mean, in Brazil, it was again, they said they, they took the moral, the moral issues and the abortions and, you know, it's, and also in the Chile now in the plebiscite, it was the same kind of, um, they, they found a few soft spots and they were hitting on them all the time. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's right. I th look, I, th I think the movements for freedom and for democracy are going to need to not only resist the darkness, um, but describe the light, you know, but show what the world looks like if we win. You know, I, I, I think President Biden has in many ways done a remarkable job of turning down the temperature, being able to, you know, grind out a bunch of legislative victories that were not particularly probable, doing a lot to help people, you know, having a very successful midterm in a way that defied the odds. But I also think when I listen to him, I understand the crises we're in. I understand what he wants to do to beat back these crises. But I, I'm not left with a picture in my mind 
of what America looks like after we have beaten back the bad stuff, I don't know what my kid's world looks like if he wins. I mean, I know the policies. I know he wants to build back better. I know there's infrastructure. I know there's climate credits for solar panels on your roof. But I long for a dream, a dream. What's the dream, right? As as uh, Anatshankar Osorio says in my book, uh, Martin Luther King didn't say, "I have a complaint." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he didn't start with what those people were doing. He started with what he wanted—the world he wanted to live in, right? A world where his four little children will one day be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. I mean, you know. And then you can talk about, but today these people are doing this, and these people are doing that. But let's not center them into the protagonist of the story. The, the riff in MLK's speech was, you know, the centerpiece was his children. It, the world his children would live in. You could see that world that he described, right? Um, and so I, I long for our movements, progress, for freedom and democracy for all people to become better at painting the beautiful tomorrow, mm. as one of my subjects in the book says. Yeah. Well, I agree with that completely. And of course, it did require me to reflect on my own work and how many speeches have I started with. 1.8 billion people are living in grossly inadequate housing and homelessness versus the speeches where I start with, imagine a world where everyone is securely homed or housed, right? And have a table around which they can sit and talk politics or have a nice meal, right? It's a totally, it, it, it is a totally different approach. And I agree that the progressive movements generally don't do that. You talk in your book, and I think it's related to the idea of shifting conversations, this idea that, and I think this is the sort of AOC chapter to some degree. And this is how I took it. If you present a vision of the world that's based in a set of progressive values or, or you know, values of the, what we might call the left, then you help to shift the conversation because you're, you're creating a conversation on your own terms, on the progressive values, rather than when you start lobbying, yeah, 1.8 billion people living in terrible conditions, then you're on the terrain of other people versus, you know, asserting your own values. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that, because I think that's super important, that idea of bringing people in to a conversation that you get to define as a progressive versus responding to a conversation. Yeah, I, I think one of the things I learned that was most interesting to me from Anat Shankar Osorio, the messaging guru, mm. is uh, to be attentive to whose conversation you're having, not just what conversation, not just you know, what you're saying in a conversation. So if someone says immigrants are animals, which unfortunately is a kind of real example in America today, um, and you respond, immigrants are not animals, on one level of analysis, you're right. Congratulations. You, you have <laughs> uttered the correct position, which is that immigrants are not, in fact, animals. Here's the problem. You have kind of unconsciously consented to having a conversation about the animalness of immigrants for and against. But that's the topic that you're not having a conversation about Canada should respect all families. You're not in that conversation. You're in a conversation about whether or not immigrants are animals, right? And the words immigrants and animals are sort of the topic. It doesn't matter what you say in that conversation. That's the topic. 
And that topic is not helpful to you. You don't want to be in that topic. That, 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 that topic is a kind of degenerate topic that's only going to undermine your side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then the question is, what conversation should you be having? How do you have a different conversation? And so, you know, saying we need an immigration system that respects all families, for example, is having your conversation, not theirs. It's forcing them to be reactionary to you, you not being reactionary to them. Uh, and so I think about that a lot. And part of that is painting the beautiful tomorrow, right? Are, are, are we... Uh, are we essentially accepting a kind of brutal capitalism and then complaining at the margins that some people are unhoused or are we articulating a world in which everyone is free, right? And freedom means you have a place to hang your hat at night and a place to put your head uh, on a pillow and a place for your children to know they are safe and loved and a place from which to walk out the door in the morning and contribute to the world in whatever way you do, so on and so forth. Um, I think we all in the last many years in particular have gotten lured into being perpetual outrage reaction machines to the outrages coming from the far right. And it's a problem because it centers them and it makes them the drivers of the conversation. And it puts us into the role of being barnacles on their conversation, when in fact, I believe that movement is a barnacle on our progress. Hmm. That was the technique of Trump in many ways, to yeah. provoke us, to, to make us share his message. And it's like, it's funny, like I experiment with this tactic the other way and it's very effective, right? I could do it right now if I wanted to, right? I could go write a tweet right now. I know there's a hand, most things I do will be totally ignored by the right-wing ecosystem, right? But there's, so there's an idea in my book, for example, that every American needs a kind of educational inoculation against the right-wing disinformation machine. If I wrote that in a tweet right now, right? The right would lose its mind and start talking about that. I can guarantee you it. And I'm going to choose to do that at the right moment for me, right? But that would be an example. But we do that so rarely and so ineffectively compared to how the right is constantly getting us off our game, getting getting us off our, our topic, right? So I, I'm for a kind of thing that puts them on the back foot, right? So we should we should provoke, but we should be smart when we do it. Make them have your conversation, right? Yeah. Um, you know, for example, on universal healthcare, let's find out how many teachers and, and, and cops and soldiers, even though they're supposed to have healthcare, are not getting great healthcare. And then let's run ads saying, why, why, why do Republicans hate our heroes? Right. You know, let's play their game a little bit. Why do they hate our heroes? Yeah. What is it about heroism that they hate? You know, instead of always kind of being like, you know, healthcare is a human right and sounding like this thing, like, hold on, what, you know, what, what, why do you hate our heroes? And, and so when they're thinking about cutting social security, I mean, every Democrat is on TV saying they're going to cut social security. Uh, that, that doesn't, I mean, that's reasonably effective, but my question is like, why are they waging a war on our elders? Mm. Right. So it's frame it better. Yeah. And the other one is to not always resend or not at all resend yeah. their stories. Cutting like, social security is their policy idea. And in a way, even that is their conversation, right? Mm. 
our elders gave us everything. Why, why are they waging a war on our elders? Right. Yeah. Make them answer to that. Don't even repeat their policy idea. The war on the planet, they will, they already have a lot of talking points about that. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> why, why do they hate God's creation so much? Mm. What is it about the world God made that, right? I mean, yeah. Like, these are the kinds of things where I want them to be on the back foot. I'm, I'm tired of being on the back foot. Yeah. And I think we all are really tired of being on the back foot. Well, I'm thinking about that shifting of terrain. And I think in Persuaders, excellent example was is Bernie Sanders. I mean, I actually didn't know that much about him before your book because I'm Canadian. I don't follow U.S. politics too closely. It's a bit too painful. <laughs> um, but this idea that, you know, Bernie's been around for a really long time and he's been saying the same thing since 1972 or whatever. And let's take tax the rich, tax the rich, tax the rich. Now, now, fast forward 40 years or whatever that is, 50 years, now, that's not such a radical thing. It was a radical thing back in the, whatever, 80s, 90s, neoliberalism is flourishing and saying tax the rich was like heresy. And obviously, AOC has had a huge impact that way, where by doing what you were just saying we should do, Anon, the let's set the agenda, let us create the conversation. By doing that, I actually think that that is helping to shift the politics a lot. I mean, AOC, let's tax anyone who makes over $10 million at 70%, right? People can say that now, and it's not so radical. And I think Democrats themselves, and you can correct me because you live there, you're living this, but I think Democrats now, even the moderates, are not so opposed to the, this idea of taxation for the rich. Am yeah, right? that's the case. And I think uh, that's why that's why having bold, bold stances and then thinking strategically about how to expand the the number of people who can who can be brought into them is is crucial. I do have a question about that and I feel daunted by by this. Um, there's a real emphasis by the advocates that you feature in your book on the kind of one by one change the individual's mind. Door knocking, half hour long conversations, even AOC's approach. I mean just this what made me feel daunted was, is, is that what this is going to take this? Like the, we, we're all working in big context. I'm working in the global context. The U S has a huge population. Like if we're doing this individual by individual, will we get there? How long will it take to get there to have really just equal and happy societies that, you know, promote human rights or support human rights. So I don't know if you can comment on that, the, that, individual to get to the structural. You know, there's many examples in the book of that kind of small scale one-on-one -on -one persuasion. And I, I center that in part because I do think in the kind of moment we're living in, in the United States and around the world, we have a challenge of really of psychological transitions that have not gone well. I mean, I think we have the, the challenge of demographic change that has left a lot of white Americans feeling like they don't know what their place will be in an equal society. As the old saying goes, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. We have a lot of white people who essentially experience the future that is coming as, as you know, falsely in my mind, they understand it to be an oppressive future and are scared of it. 
that's a really big psychological transition we have to manage. You know, I think we have a psychological transition around gender change. Just, a, you know, most men living today were not raised with an assumption of women being their equal. So now that that is a widely accepted idea, uh, unfortunately, the, the men who were raised in the old paradigm do not automatically update their software to to know how to live on an assumption of women's equality. A whole lot of men, I think, are very fine with this and have changed themselves and behave differently than their fathers or grandfathers or maybe than they behaved 20 years ago. But a whole bunch of other men just have not made that psychological transition yet. Some have, some haven't. I think the you know, rise of China it changed what people do and what people's jobs are, what kind of educations people needed. In so many places in this country and around the world, we've not really properly managed those psychological transitions. When I think about countries like India, countries like Brazil, globalization came in really fast and furious and changed the landscape, changed the economy, gave people money. But a lot of people lost a sense of who they were, lost a sense of what they're connected and you know, their connection to the culture was lost a sense of identity. And again, those psychological transitions are hard. And so, yeah, I think mass media is not a great tool for that necessarily. I mean, it's one tool and I think it's an important tool, but I think we're going to need to, if we want multiracial democracy to survive, I think we're going to need to do a ton of base building as organizers call it, which is really more of that one-on-one -on -one thing. And, you know, while it's a lot of people, that's also what politics is. But it, there's nothing wrong with training one or two million people in deep canvassing. If we can spend billions of dollars in our politics, surely we can train millions of people to go have civic engagement with other people and have these conversations. Uh, but I don't think that's the only approach. I also think yeah. we need, you know, uh, to communicate differently in advertisements. And I think we need to uh, have politicians who are able to speak, talk voters through these psychological transitions. But if I could kind of wave one magic wand, I think there is a enormous failure around the world and in the United States to manage psychological transitions. Mm. And basically the bad guys are good at getting into the psychological transitions and inflaming them. The bad guys get white people feel they can't say what they want to say anymore, or that men feel that, you know, they can't just be men anymore, all these things, right? And so they get in there and they mm. inflame it and take advantage of it. And basically those of us who want these changes, who want the new world to come, who want men to behave in ways that don't depend on the subjugation of women, who want white people to account for their whiteness and find ways to have esteem that are not based on being central or being supreme or being the default. Those of us who want that world, I think, have been really crappy at inviting people into it and at understanding how hard it is for people to let go of their training in life. Even if the goal is correct, even if the destination is correct, it is hard to let go of the training of unfair societies. And so I think we need to get a lot better at, at, at that. And we can't be demoralized. We have to stand up and insist on the kind of world we want and then invitingly irresistibly pull people in to those to those visions so they become shared visions and shared dreams and achievable ones if we are going to deliver the world we want and the world we deserve let's do that all of you let's do yeah. it thank you anan shiradas for being at pushback talks great yeah. to talk to you all thank you so much for having me thank you thanks so much ciao Bye. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film.
To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film.